OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Igor, welcome. We're, uh, we like to just keep going right at it. So have a good little conversation going and then we jump right into it. So yeah. uh, very excited to have you here today. Um, I've, uh, uh, I think the reason that I'm really more excited, and I, I love to say this, I'm excited about anybody that I get to have a conversation with in the angel VC world. Uh, but what I really like about your background is that you come from a technical background. And that is very rare that I get to interview someone that has a technical background, which is very similar to myself. So it's kind of dear to my heart that I get to pick brain with a, a tech geek. And that is something that's amazing. So uh, for me, uh, we're going to jump right into that part of it, but maybe the best way to start is um, if you can give us a little bit on your background, kind of where you've come through the exits, through uh, everything you've done in Boston and the, in the, the networks there, kind of where you are today and uh, where you're going. And then we'll, uh, we'll kind of jump into the conversation from there. And then one thing about you that nobody will know. That nobody will know. I'm an open book, so I don't know if I could think of something. Oh, you can find something in there, Igor. Come on. I know oh, it. Hi. Let, give me a, give me a minute. I'll think about it, but let me give you my background. So, uh, yeah, like you said, uh, tech guy. So I, uh, uh, I wrote my first line of code when I was nine. I made my first money from software when I was 12. Uh, and it's just been, uh, I guess uphill downhill. I don't know what you would call it, but it, it, it went from there. Uh, so I've had, uh, startup after startup uh you know my uh, i i'm originally from ukraine i lived in moscow my dad was an entrepreneur so it's kind of like in my blood and uh just startup after startup uh of all sorts of kinds um uh, mostly uh failures uh some gloriously so uh some uh for all sorts of reasons sometimes uh sometimes co-founders sometimes like the typical ran out of money thing sometimes uh uh, one time, uh, a legal issue where I was told, don't you dare launch this. Uh, <laughs> and uh, eventually, you know, I, I, I lived in Boston, I lived in San Francisco, came back to Boston, found a startup, and uh, finally had like a, a big, big exit. Uh, not a big, big exit, but a big enough exit. And uh, that was a couple of years ago. Uh, and uh, basically kind of pivoted my life since then because it gave me a little bit of flexibility to do some, uh, well, basically anything I wanted. And what I wanted to do was help startups uh, in all sorts of different ways. So I did some angel investing, I, I do consulting. I'm, uh, uh, well, my title is mentor in residence, although there's no longer a residence because of COVID, but I'm a mentor in residence at, uh, at uh, One Valley, which is an accelerator program, it used to be called GSP Labs. And uh, just, you know, uh, I'm doing some uh, angel investing on my own. I do it with a group uh, here in Boston called Beacon Angels. Just having fun, man. <laughs> no, I love that. Uh, very good. Very, uh, uh, very in sync with the world of entrepreneurship and angel investing. So I, I love the, the background and how that all ties together. So maybe, well, before that, I'm still going to let you keep thinking about that one thing that you're going to share right. with us and we can hold it off because we've got a personal segment. We'll talk about near the end of uh, our, our chat, but 
I'm picking between two or three things. Come back to me later. All right. We'll talk about that at the end then. Um, So what I love to do is kind of really dive more into that background experience. So I love the fact that when you were nine, you were writing code. When you were 12, you were diving right into it and and building a, a, a little empire. How much of that background has really defined how you're investing? And the reason why I like to kind of play off this angle is because when you start to explore your, your past and how much it shapes your future is that when you start to dive into these startups, you're coming at it from a totally different angle. You're not coming at it from finance. You're not coming at it from marketing. You're really coming in from the technical standpoint and that background you've built over the last however many years. So how do you define how much that's helped you today? And, and what do you look for when you're looking at founders because of your background in tech? It's a, it's a good question. Uh, it's very much a double-edged sword, right? Because on one hand, you know, you invest in what you know. What I know is tech. Uh, so I'm very adept at uh, looking at a company, qualifying the technology, doing almost a mental tech due diligence on them very rapidly and assessing whether it has legs or not. Uh, on the other hand, right, it blinds me a little bit to the, to the financial side. Um, even though I could assess that as well, right? Uh, I've had, uh, you know, so far all of my investments, knock on, you know, fake Ikea wood, uh, but all of my investments are live. I've had a couple that are kind of stagnating, but they're all kind of live so far. Uh, but for sure, one of the very first uh, angel investments I made uh, was in a, uh, in a Boston company, uh, like two-sided marketplace uh, sort of play. Uh, I looked at the tech, looked great. I looked at the idea. I'm like, this is awesome. And I didn't look at the financial side at all. I didn't look at, you know, customer acquisition costs. I didn't look at run rate. I didn't look at anything. I was like, here you go. Here's some money, run with it. I learned my lesson. (laughs) I learned my lesson for sure. Um, On the other hand, you know, I, um, I do have, so for the most part, personally, I invest in, technology I can understand, assess, and believe in its longevity. Uh, However, that's exactly why I joined an angel group, right? Because basically uh, I said, look, there's there's opportunities out there that I can't assess. Uh, It would be really great to work with people that can help me, right? And so on the angel group side, I do have uh, companies in my investment portfolio that are uh, life science companies. There's one company that's doing you know, a, a post-op eye gel type of thing uh, that I know zero about. I went to a board meeting once and I, I think I left smarter, <laughs> but I only understood half the words, you know, as two doctors, kind of ophthalmologists running it. Um, and I have some other uh, kind of things that I don't quite understand. And I'm kind of trusting my, my peers to lead me in the right direction. But, uh, you know, fundamentally, angel investing is a hobby. Right. And that's what, you know, I talked to a lot of kind of beginner angel investors that were me maybe five years ago. Like, hey, I came into some money. I had an exit. What do I do with it? And the first thing I tell them is you can't look at this as investment. I know it's called angel investment, but it's not an investment. It's 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 an expensive hobby. Right. Like you like skiing 10x that that's angel investment. Right. Maybe you'll hit something, but really what you're doing is you're, you're giving back to the community and you're, you're letting someone have a chance. So the same way how all of my angel investments are live, uh, none of them have been you know, a big exit for me. One guy actually 
return me uh, the convertible note with interest and, and, and said, look, I, I, uh, my company stagnated. I sold it for, for assets. So here's your 20K back plus 5% interest. And I said, look, you're ahead of the curve. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Exactly. That's exactly. I, when I invest in, I mean, I, I shouldn't say when I invest in something, I kind of write it off, but like mentally yeah. I prepare myself to do that. So when it comes back to me with 5%, I mean, yeah, I, I bought a bottle of champagne <laughs> for sure. <laughs> well, and you, you brought, you touched on a lot of great points there. And the one is that you almost in this space, when you're not doing it full time, it really is, it's a hobby. Uh, of trying to pick the winners and hopefully they're the ones that drive forward, but you really are. You're almost, you've got a set of money that you've put aside that says, here's really high risk dollars. And I'm going to throw this money into this many companies per year. And I hope that this is going to bring me some gains, but really I'm okay. If it doesn't, uh, I'm going to keep working with the community and building out and giving back and helping people. But I really do write that dollars off and hundred percent that that's, uh, a strong early stage angel VC mentality, because uh, if you didn't, and you were stressing out then you would probably work in 24 hours a day, trying to work inside of every investment you're with to save and make every company work and grow. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's metrics out there and I've read some stuff about how many investments one must make before statistically you have a positive outcome, right? Like a VC like outcome. And it's something only the super angels get to, right? If I'm investing in a handful of companies a year, I have 10, 15, 20 investments. It's a crapshoot, right? If I'm a super angel, you know, if I'm investing in a hundred things, then I can aim for like a VC, like 12% return or something like that. But at my, at my, you know, paltry level, it's, it's a gamble for sure. Well, it's still great that you're doing it because again, it's a tough space and, and there's not a lot of people that like to get into that gambling side and, um, you know, hats off to you. I think it's uh, amazing that you're doing it and uh, the whole mentality of going in and giving back and, and being able to be part of that, I think is huge. So we commend you for it and we hope more people will jump into the space just like you do. Uh, so that's amazing because it does help these companies get off the ground. So there's uh, one thing that really kind of stands out in all of these things that you've done and what you said, and that was qualifying the tech. So a lot of founders, and I'm going to just put a number out and say that 30% of maybe 40% of companies that are created in the tech space are created by non-technical founders. I would say it's a bit higher that there's more technical founders that create it, but they usually find somebody on the business side to run uh, and manage it. And sometimes it's just them operating and running it. But if it's just pure businesses in the technical space that have started, it's probably 30, 40% where they have to hire someone to do the tech. So they're trusting somebody else to do this. And I'm sure you've come across this when you're diving into these companies again, because you're not talking with a technical co-founder or the founder, how do you validate this code? And are they open-minded to you coming in and taking a look at it? Are they uh, think it's amazing or are they afraid that you're going to beat them up and that this isn't the right thing and they built the wrong thing. So how do you kind of coach those companies through getting their product to market in a technical or non-technical biased way so that when you do come in, uh, there's going to be a good review uh, for companies and the audience listening. Yeah. That's a deep question. Uh, so look, there is, um, I'm going to, I'm going to answer in two different parts because there's Igor, the person, and then there is 
my company, which I created partially to address exactly the problem that you're kind of implying, right? There's a lot of founders out there that end up with a terrible experience working with, you know, co-founders, freelancers, dev shops, not, not through any fault of their own and often not through any fault of the developers that they're working with, right? It's just, uh, you know, there, there, there's a long road from what's in someone's head and what a developer actually ends up with, right? And so for the most part, I would say that the founders, regardless of whether they're technical or not, are very open and in fact appreciative of someone like me looking at the code. Occasionally, when you, when you end up dealing with who I would call the scammy web shops, which is not the majority, but some, right? That the kind of folks that hold code hostage before you, you know, until you pay, the kind of folks that you know have vague SOWs and then argue about what was and wasn't in them. Those kind of folks very much don't like me in them, um, and not because because you have to you have to remember the, the the founder wants an investment, right? So they want me to come in, have a good experience, and give them some money. The, these guys don't care about whether I invest in the company, right? They they want to get paid for the work that they've done and they don't want to show anybody the, the quality of that work. So I have had some resistance, but it's almost never from the founders. Um, and in fact, you know, Igor the person helps a lot of founders with kind of like, you know, let me take a look at what you're doing there. I had a call just the other day with a with a technical founder, but this was like his first go around. And, and uh, he called me in the middle of the night. He's like, Igor, I know like it's the middle of the night. I'm working on this React code. I just can't get it to work. Like, can you just look at it? I'm like, that's fine. Like, let's hop on a, on a, on a Google Meet and we kind of debugged it together. So I'm happy to do that. Um, but uh, yeah, it's rarely from the founder. And in fact, that's Igor the person. Fast CTO, my company, about a third of our clients are technical founders. Uh, that kind of, uh, they know that, hey, I'm a competent developer. I've never done something of this scale. Let me work with someone that can help me get it to that level and prepare me for the due diligence that's going to happen in the future, right? Because they, they, they've never been through the diligence. They don't know what's gonna, what, uh, what the other guys are going to ask for, the VCs or the angels or whatever, although they ask different things. And so we go in there and we say, okay, look, you can't, store your passwords in the database, you know, you can't do this, you can't do that. And we help them out. So in that kind of deep dive and when you're qualifying it, this is for Igor to be coming in as an investor into this company. Um, have you stopped and decided not to invest in a company because you found that even though this looked like a great product, great company, when you dove in, you were questioning the um, style of the code or the antics or what they've done, what they missed, what they didn't do right. And just kind of looked at it and were like, you know what, based on this, you guys are way too early for me, even though you're raising this much and you're doing this and your business is doing okay. But man, this platform is going to fall apart if you hit a thousand users and I don't want to be part of that ship. So have you ever had to kind of really dig into that and say that? Dig in is the wrong word because it's usually pretty obvious really quickly. But there's definitely been, it's not, it hasn't been because you're too early for me. And it's rarely because, hey, this won't scale. Because, you know, I build things to scale, like Igor the person builds things to scale, but Igor the entrepreneur 
kind of believe that scaling is tomorrow's problem, right? Like, let's get it out. Let's get revenue. Then we'll deal yep. with scale. Yep. So what stops me dead in my tracks is code that the founder expects to be the foundation. Like they're asking for money. They're raising whatever to build on top of. And this thing is not a foundation, right? So uh, a quote I always tell every founder and every entrepreneur, actually really everybody, is shortcuts are okay to take as long as you know you're taking them, right? And so if you know you're taking them, then you could plan for the future where you're like, okay, I made the shortcut today. Here's my plan to remediate it later. What happens often is, uh, especially with non-technical entrepreneurs, is they they uh, send the you know, they, they offshore their development or whatever, which is nothing wrong with offshoring, but they, they, they basically send it out. And those folks make a lot of shortcuts that the founder doesn't know about. The founder gets something, thinks, okay, well, I'm raising $100,000 to take this from this scale to this scale. And I'm looking at be like, this is not the thing you take, right? Like you could turn a Nissan into a Ferrari with a lot of work, but you can't turn a scooter into a Ferrari you know, like no matter how, how hard you work. So that's kind of, that's what stops me. And, and if they come into it with like the clarity that that's the case, that's a different story for sure. So there's a lot of understanding there that if they have that and they can plan it, then you're willing to kind of work with them on that investment and how they're going to move forward. So I think that makes sense because as a startup, you have, you know, you don't have all the money in the world. You have uh, the means to to drive out something well, but you can't build the Ferrari right away. You've got to build the moped or you got to build the uh, Turismo and then you'll work your way up, right? Yeah. F- fundamentally, what it comes down to is I want a founder that has clarity as to how they're spending the investment. So if you, you know, the most decks I look at, one of the slides is like, I'm asking for $500,000 and here's how I'm going to break it down. If that looks right to me, that's a big check mark, right? Like I'd rather not see that slide than see that slide and it being blatantly wrong. So, so where that breaks down for me is if you've got a founder that says, okay, you know, I have this MVP, this is going to hold me over for a few months or whatever. And then I'm going to, you know, take 50 K and build up build on top of it. And I'm looking at this code and it's, I'm like, it's going to cost you 200 K just to rewrite it, which is, it's rarely that high, but you know, sometimes that whole deal falls apart for me because then this founder clearly has no idea what they're holding. Yeah. Which is okay. Problem. No. And that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So how much of this knowledge that you gain as being a techie, how much of this has given you the forward thinking of, I want to get into this space because this is going to be a new tech stack or this is going to be a new way that uh, people are going to be building X and Y. So are you attracted to those types of things in startups as well, that they're cutting edge, leading, bleeding edge in the way development's being done, or that's really not part of it enough. That doesn't really make your or tweak your investment opportunities. You're going after more of the, the people running the business and the, the opportunity than you are on the newest, craziest tech that's coming to market. I, usually, usually I want tried and true. Uh, I, and I don't want a technical co-founder that's using their startup as an excuse to like try out a new language, right? All the time, like well, the hot new thing is going, right? 
And about once a month, I meet some founder that says, hey, you know, I, here's my new app. It's in Golang. Is this your first Golang project? Yes. <laughs> you know, of course, because everybody's Golang project is their first Golang project. And so I'm certainly not going to invest in a startup that's somebody's guinea pig, right? Uh, that's not to say I want them to be using like Fortran, right? But there's, there's mature technologies with a good community that has, you know, a lot of developers when you need to hire at a good rate because, you know, you're using my money to hire them, right? So, you know, and you, you Jeff, you probably know, you know, some technologies, even though tech stacks are a commodity, some tech stacks are better for certain things and some tech stacks organically cost more to develop it, right? Like for some reason, I don't know why Ruby developers are more expensive than Node developers, right? Yeah, that was so, my next question. Yeah, it's I don't crazy. know why. Like, Ruby developers are the hardest people to find. Yeah. They don't want to do the code. And if they do, they're super expensive. And I always ask, why did you build this in Ruby? Like, well, my friend builds in this. And you're like, you're one friend. Did you ever look about maybe if you had two friends in developing Ruby? Because we can't find two people that consistently code in this if I'm not hitting 14 countries to find them. Um, it, sure, the code's good for really small little aspects anymore. But why don't you go to a more common language? And then they're like, well, we looked at Java. I'm like, another one. Why do you go after these languages that your people cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to work in? And you're not building NASA. You don't need Java. Go and use something else. So, and I'm not sure where this, it's that one technical person that maybe has been coding in Java for a decade or 20 decades or two years, whatever, but they all seem to go to the, what they know. And then they just follow it, whatever that friend has shared, but it can kind of impede the growth because like you said, cost is a big one. And if you can't find the developers and they're, they're going off, not as common platforms, you're going to be spending a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, an even more common and extreme example of this is when founders engage with dev shops, right? Because what a lot of founders don't understand, and I, and I try to tell everybody, if you take your PowerPoint, that like every founder comes with, like, here's what I want to build. You show it to three dev shops, and one dev shop says, build it in Java, one says build it in PHP, one says build it in Node. It's not because they're saying that because that's the best thing for you. And it's not even because they're saying that because that's what they specialize in. They're saying that because the people on the bench they have right now that's what they specialize in, right? Yep. You should never follow that route. You should pick what you want to build, decide how you're going to build it and hire to that. It like flips the whole model on its side a little bit. Yeah, agreed. And that's, uh, that's some great advice. And I, and I also think when you're looking at that outsource dev shop or you're even insourcing it and you've decided on the type of platform, just ensure that you can resource it properly that your area or where you're going to be uh, collaborating can find those types of resources to fill that bucket. That's the last thing you want to do is go to somebody that's working three jobs, trying to code for you. Uh, and you're, you're going to take even longer to get that production done. Exactly. So now that you've kind of utilized a lot of this back end that you've built up over time and this understanding of, of the, the deep tech side, how much um, innovation do you bring to these startups when you make investment? Are you leading them with that tech uh, desires and pushes and kind of saying, hey guys, I'm using the tool. Have you ever thought of this? Do you bring this in? Or do you spend more of your time working on the business side, trying to help them with lead generation, getting them in front of more investors? Like what kind of role do you play when you're working with them 
when you're coming in as a technical uh, investor? So, you know, the goal is to always be, as Mark Cuban uh, says, smart money, right? Uh, but I also realize that I'm not the smartest and there's not every investment that I make that I'm the smart money in, right? To, to use the example of the iGel, I, I don't know, <laughs> right? So they have my money for sure. And they have my full, you know, moral support behind them. But like, don't call me with a question, right? I can't, <laughs> there, there's no lead gen and there's no help I can give you. Uh, but that's, you know, through a, through a angel group, right? Yep. Uh, when it's a personal investment, then 100%, uh, you know, I, I become an advisor. Uh, in fact, that's uh, for my personal investments. That's, that's part of the part of the rule that uh, I'm on your advisory board. You, you know, you have an open line of communication with me. I want you to use me for what I'm good at. Uh, we sign typically a fast agreement, like the founder institute, uh, the founder advisor standard template thing. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm completely accessible to them, uh, cause I want them to succeed. Igor, the company, uh, fast CTO, uh, Igor, the person, fast CTO, the company does exactly the same thing, just times 150. Right. And so, uh, everybody we work with, if they have connections with angel investors and VCs and private equity and whatever else, uh, family offices. And we just basically, we, we we really only work with companies we believe in because we're not a dev shop. So it's a little bit different, right? So you need to prove to us that like you have legs and then we're like, okay, we'll help you succeed. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's been great. Uh, it's different from investing a little bit. Right. But, uh, you know, we try to help. For sure. I love it. There was one thing that as myself, as a technical, uh, coder engineer back in the day. And now I obviously operate and run a software company. Um, and we stick to what we're good at. We don't try to veer off into any other directions. Maybe in the past we did because we were exploratory and we wanted to learn more, but we know we're good at, we stick to what we're good at. So, but what I found was that when we work with developers or we work with technical people, and even throughout my career working with technical people, uh, I found this and maybe I'm just biased because uh, you spend so much time in the area, but I find that technical founders understand the mechanisms of the business from a whole different angle. They see things differently. So they have a whole different opinion of how the business should operate and function and run. And I think non-technical people don't look at it from that way. Maybe they just look at it from uh, the top down, whereas technical people look at it from the bottom up. So they're seeing all the moving parts operating and moving. So they're understanding what marketing is doing with sale. Everybody else is doing because they're from the bottom looking up versus down and trying to figure it out. So do you find that with the business that you've constructed and built, because you just mentioned that you guys are looking at companies that you feel you can fit into and work with. So are you guys looking from the top uh, bottom up and you guys are coming in with such a different view of a company and it's way more valuable to that startup because of how you're envisioning and seeing the product expand how the business operates. Um, and you find that that is a real big asset to not just to you and your business, but to technical investors that they, they really, you should find one that comes into your company. You should bring a technical investor or advisor um, into your investment, have them understand your business because they're going to see it a lot different than you do from a business point of view downwards. Yeah. I mean, it's case by case. I, I would love 
for what you just said to be the norm, <laughs> but it really is case by case. And, you know, we work with a lot of technical founders that really kind of follow the model that you're talking about, but we work with just as many technical founders that don't understand the business side at all. Right. Yeah. And, and nor do they care to understand it. Right. We, we work with a lot of folks for better or for worse that kind of cre- not a separation of like of roles per se, but, but kind of, uh, this is my expertise. This is your expertise. Of course, we're working together. Of course, there's an open channel communication, but like, I'll do my thing, you do your thing. I, I don't think that's the best approach for sure, but there are a lot of folks like that. Um, I found that a lot of investors that I work with that are technical background, I just love how they pick a business apart. Uh, it, oh, it's yeah. just that they see it totally different than a business person. And that's why I kind of see it as being a bottom up view. And then the business people just don't understand the tech. So they don't see the business in the same direction. So I find that they almost seem less knowledgeable about their own business. And I don't know if that's right or wrong, but it just seems that there's a different view in, right? The good technical co-founders extrapolate better, right? Uh, To like really put it simply, because when they hear a business requirement, they kind of in their head, it's like, okay, it could be this or this or this or this down the road. Here's phase one, here's phase two, here's phase three. I know you're saying just this, but really it's all of these things. And they go back and they put in the right architecture. The good ones. Not everybody's the good one, but that's where we come in and we kind of mitigate it and, and, and help out. I like that extrapolation. It's kind of like um, uh, they're taking the problem. The problem has been zipped together with everything into this one folder. And instead of having to unzip it so that everybody can understand it, the CTO or co-founder CTOs are already in that zip file, figuring out all the buckets and how it's going to affect the business in the long run, which will then allow them to extrapolate the good, the bad, and the ugly so that the rest of the teams, founders, marketers, uh, operations people can better understand what will change to the tech, which will change to how they all operate in their silos and how that's going to affect or benefit them in the long term. Yeah. And then, you know, to what you said a couple of minutes ago, for sure, technical founders get a much bigger picture, right? Because when you're talking about all these different arms, marketing, advertising, all that, guess who's integrating all of that into the main application, right? So you might not know the details of, you know, how to set up the Facebook campaign, but you know how the data flows in and how, you know, uh, it goes into the CRM and everything else. So I will say just as kind of, <laughs> to shoot myself in the foot a little bit. There are some statistics, I don't have it in front of me, but I saw it a couple of months ago that I think said something like 70% of recent unicorns are, are co-founders that met in business school. To the, the implication of the course that they're not technical co-founders, right? Or not always, sometimes, usually, right? And so it's certainly not a requirement for a company to have a technical co-founder. Does it help? only if they're good, <laughs> right? Just like any co-founder. Yeah, yeah. That's a caveat every time. Only if they're good. If they're yeah. good, it'll work really well. Yeah, but that's why it's hard to find co-founder. Like finding a co-founder is, uh, is one of the hardest parts. And I, by the way, on the investment side, I don't invest because of the team just as often as I don't invest because of the tech, right? Like uh, the team that, independently is strong and together is stronger. That's a team you want. Yeah, I agree with that. 
So we're going to kind of jump a little bit, even though I'm trying to figure out, I want to ask a question. Like when you laid some code down at nine years old, I was going to, I was going to avoid this, but I got to ask. So when you were coding at nine, uh, was it self-taught? Was it class just said, Hey everybody, we're going to start coding. And you were just like done. Hey, this is easy. No, we kind of got you to that. I'll, I'll tell you, I, I can give you the, uh, the, the story. So, uh, in Russia, so I was born, I was born in Kiev. I moved to Moscow. I grew up in Moscow and in Moscow, my father ran a store that basically bought computers in America and resold them in Russia. So I had access to computers still in communist Russia before most Americans had access to computers. Right. And so, you know, I was playing, uh, I was playing Tetris and volleyball in like the, the late eighties and, and, and things like that. Right. Volleyball is, I don't know if anybody of your listeners remembers it's like a DOS game where these two bobbleheads bounce uh, a volleyball. Anyway, it's a really awesome game. It's like a DOS game. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, when I was nine, my, my father, who was like, you know, you will be a software developer, <laughs> you know, he bought me, if you remember, uh, back in the nineties, these were very popular, like learn whatever in 21 days. You remember those games, yeah, uh, yeah. those books. So he, he, he bought me this book and it was called learn C plus plus game development in 21 days. And it was a book this thick. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I think I had that book. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so a C plus plus is one of the most convoluted languages you can learn. Game development is one of the hardest areas to be in. Good luck. 21 days. And, and it's like nine year old. So that, you know, turned me off to like computers. Basically I started that. I'm like, okay, so pointers, huh? And, and I wrote some code. I, I did some stuff. I actually did make, I think it was a Minesweeper. Uh, not Minesweeper. Um, what was it called? Uh, yeah. Minesweeper like game. Uh, that, uh, it wasn't exactly mine super. I'm trying to remember what exactly what it was. But it was Minecraft, like, like the one where the, you had the squares and the boxes and the, you checked yeah, on but, it. But, 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 uh, trying to remember what it was. Anyway, Pong so, was another one that was pretty Tetris, Pong. Those were all like easy. Yeah, but nothing with movement, right? Tetris has a lot of movement. Yeah. Uh, Pong has movement and tracking and collision tracking. I mean, it's a whole thing, right? Yeah, this yeah. was simpler at nine years old. Give me a break. All right. So, so basically it was simple. I made some little game and I was just like, Nope, I'm done. Then we moved to the States and a couple of years ago, uh, a couple of years later, you know, the internet was kind of becoming a thing. Right. Yep. And so when I was, when I was 12, I was, you know, I kind of said, okay, like, let's take a look at what this HTML thing is. Right. This was like HTML one Netscape navigator gold days. Right. And so I started making some simple websites and then, you know, it turns out that most companies back then didn't have a website. So, and everybody had one year of experience, including 12 year olds. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was on a, I was on a level playing field as like everybody else. So I actually did. I ended up uh, making some websites for some companies, uh, in, in Connecticut, uh, where I, where I lived and, uh, you know, made some money. My first check was for $120. And they paid me $10 per web page on their website. And it had 12 pages. Nice. Like, you know, so as a 12 year old, I got a $120 check and then it kind of, you know, it went from there. Did you charge taxes on that? That might've been, uh, I think that was under the table. Up. It was under the table. <laughs> don't, don't tell him. Charge child labor going here. What's going on with exactly. that? Exactly. Oh, that's an awesome story. Uh, yeah. so now we're going to fast forward all the way through to your investment period again, but I had to ask that question. Yeah, no, it seemed exciting. And it was, um, so with your, 
with all of the experience you've had now in investing and the companies you've worked with, all the companies you've, you've um, looked at, deep dived in from technical business side, uh, and the learnings you've had, is there one company that kind of stood out to you that really blew your mind away that, you know, one of those real entrepreneurial ship, entrepreneurship stories where it was like, this is amazing. I couldn't believe where they came from and how they got to here. Uh, they almost fell off a cliff and now they're rocking it or uh, just something that really makes you kind of feel what it's like to be an entrepreneur. Huh. A real positive crushing it story yeah. to do the engage behind, you know? Listen, I, uh, there's a lot of positive, very, uh, kind of optimistic and influential and just like great startups that I've, I've come across and worked with. I don't know if anything comes to mind with that big of a dip, right? Cause you're looking for like a comeback story. Listen, every company I've ever been part of at one point or another, we were broke, <laughs> right? Regardless of whether we raised money or bootstrapped or whatever, you know, we went to zero, sometimes below zero. And so in a couple of times we came back out of it. So I guess, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Um, I should say like, because I do a lot of, I do, I, I work with a lot of accelerators. I talk to a lot of first-time founders, you know, it's just like sports, right? For every Michael Jordan, there's a million kids that, that aren't that, right? And so for every really inspiring story, that doesn't mean you should always throw good money after bad, <laughs> right? Like there are a lot of bad ideas, wrong timed ideas, all sorts of stuff. So you can't just always hope for a turnaround, but it does happen occasionally, right? And, and, and then it's, you know, it's really awesome. I love it. I love it. And you're right. And it's a good analogy that, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of Michael Jordans or sorry, there's only a couple Michael Jordans in the league, but there's always a lot of everybody else and they all bring good value, but you don't know how long they're going to last in the league. Um, and you gotta, you can, you want to bet on the big winner, but sometimes you're going to bet on everybody else. And you're hoping that they're going to get taken out too. But, you know, you can't, if, yeah. if, if you know, someone breaks a leg or snaps an ankle or just doesn't make it the next year, it's part of the mix. And that's part of the investment. And it's part of the excitement. And, 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 and by the way, you don't need to be a Michael Jordan, right? Like a lot of folks uh, listening to this, uh, your company is not investable, but that doesn't mean it's a bad company, right? Uh, everybody always talks about lifestyle companies as, as if it's a bad thing, you know, like if you've got a million dollars a year in passive income coming in from your lifestyle company, you're fine, <laughs> right? Like you, you don't need to be a unicorn. Like you, you're, you're fine. Uh, so there's plenty of companies that I, that, that I work with and plenty of founders that are kind of, whether they believe it or not whether they wanted originally or not are in like a good spot in their company. And like, no, I'm not going to invest in it because I'm never going to see a return, but it doesn't mean that you're not going to make a good life out of it. Exactly. And there's nothing wrong with uh, making money and getting paid and being sustainable and growing and exactly. hiring people and, and having a great lifestyle and being able to take home a couple hundred thousand or a couple hundred million every year without having to be stressed yeah. on the investment side, but even a hundred thousand, Right, a hundred thousand in most places, not San Francisco, perhaps not Boston. You could live a good life on, right? And taking home a hundred thousand a year, being your own boss, you know, taking a day off to play with your kids when you want to, 
like there's a part to that life that's who could ask for anything more you know like it's okay not to work 80 hours a week and hope for a unicorn it's nice I, to have a unicorn but it's okay to not <laughs> i like it i like it very positive very positive yeah. Um, all right, we're going to jump into the rapid fire questions. Bring it. All right. And we actually didn't talk about some of this, so this will be good too. So, yeah, I have not heard. I have not opened the prep. <laughs> oh, even better. So we'll have the random, random questions. This is good. Okay, so why do you invest in startup companies? Because I did not know that was a thing in the first couple of startups that I did, right? Um, I've had so many failures and they were all bootstrapped. I didn't even know the investment was on the table. I was young, you know, whatever. These days, it's more in the mainstream and we got shows like Shark Tank and all that kind of stuff. So people know it's out there, uh, but really it's to give back, it's to give others an opportunity. And so, you know, if I could save someone 10 years of mistakes that I made, <laughs> I, I see it as a positive. Well, it's understandable when you're building your first company at 12 that you might not know that there's angel investors out there. So. Um, okay. So how did you get started? What was the, what was the impetus of getting you in the market? What got you to say, I'm going to invest in this company. I had more money than I knew what to do with. Not in like a, like a stupid way, but like I had, I had a couple hundred thousand dollars and I said, you know, what can I do with this besides put it in, you know, some sort of a account. And so I'll tell you, part of that was me being stupid because the very first investment I made was also my biggest and the one I regret the most, right? <laughs> Since yeah. then, I've kind of like, you know, found a good cadence and I know what to look for and all that kind of stuff. But I was, you know, uh, coming hot off an eggs and now I'm like, let's do it. Let's spend some money. <laughs> all right, we learn, right? And then you find your balance. That's good. What's your favorite part of investing? Oh. <sighs> It's not the returns. I haven't seen many of those yet. Uh, it's not the due diligences because those are less fun than they should be. Honestly, I, I, it's, it's meeting uh, it's meeting smart people. I, I love I love just meeting smart people. I, you know, and you don't know all the time that you're like having lunch with someone that's going to change the world in ten years. And oftentimes, that's not oftentimes, but occasionally that's the case. And then you can look back and be like, oh yeah, we got a burrito. You know, I, I, I think that that part is actually really awesome. If I can participate in that success, then, you know, that's the cherry on top, but just, just meeting smart people, having smart conversations and not being bored. I love it. Uh, how many companies do you invest in per year? Uh, the first couple of, so the last couple of years has been three to four, not a lot. Uh, the first year was five or six and it kind of tapered off. Uh, the last year or so has been less just because I've been focusing on fast CTO and kind of throwing that. Uh, so it's been mostly uh, uh, follow-on investments. Okay. So well, you're above average. That faucet very soon. <laughs> you know? You're above average, so that's good. Um, any verticals that you focus on? So Igor, the person, invests in what he knows. Igor working with other investors is a lot more spread out. Uh, but the verticals, so I, I, I don't like, uh, I, I, think I like everything. I don't understand. There's no beverage. I don't do any food beverage. I just don't, I don't know. It's a, it, that seems to be a crapshoot of a crapshoot to me, right? Because you just never know. 
Uh, so it's mostly some sort of tech or science, even if it's life science, like there's some sort of a thing there that I can wrap my head around. Not like how many whole foods can you get in the door with? I, I, that to me, I don't know. So no widget, no, no like shark tanky type stuff at all. Yeah. Okay. I love watching shark. I just don't invest. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. Uh, do you have any due diligence requirements that you like to ensure that are part of uh, when you're making an investment? Uh, to make it a commitment is that could be the team. It could be paperwork, uh, anything that really stands out that you say, you know what, if I'm an investor, I need these three things. That was well, so obviously the team. I need to be able to have a conversation with the team and walk away from that being, they're not going to throw away my money. <laughs> you know, they might fail, but it's not because they're incompetent. Right. Uh, I need to look at the debt. And I need to walk away from that being like, they understand the domain. Um, and the, the, this part is maybe a little snooty of me, but if there's spelling errors on your pitch deck, that's an immediate no, right? Because if you don't care enough when you're asking for half a million dollars to spell check your spelling, your, your, your deck, then you're not gonna be careful with my money either. And I feel like I could say that because English is not even my first language, right? So I don't feel like I'm being, you know, uh, elitist about it, but spell checking <laughs> your pitch deck. Hey, I like that. You come up with a little formula that works. And if you catch it and you figure it out and you look back two years later, you're like, glad I didn't invest in them. They couldn't even spell travel. I'm out. Entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's a hard word. I, I, you know, I spell it wrong sometimes too, but then I right click and I pick the right spelling. I don't just leave it in the deck. <laughs> I think we're used to, uh, uh, having spell checker just come on. And when it doesn't come on, we then uh, just accept that the, the spelling because you're reading over it too quick. And then you realize it after, but I, I do agree with you on that. I That's will great. say like, if, if, if uh, like for April fools, if like windows and, and Mac OS got rid of the squiggly underline and misspelled words, you know, <laughs> I think wouldn't look good. A lot of, good. a lot of emails are going to go out <laughs> that don't look right. Yep, I agree. Um, okay, do you lead rounds? Do I what? Do lead I lead rounds? rounds? Um, I don't feel like I have the whole kind of competence to do it. Uh, I, I, I can do the tech side. I could do the finance side these days to some degree of certainty. But, you know, like I can't do legal. I don't know what to look for. I can't double check your contracts, you know, so I definitely need help. And so now I don't need rounds. Okay. Uh, do you prefer uh, any specific terms, pref shares, common shares, safes, anything you prefer? You know, the group I'm with doesn't like safes. I have invested in safes. And for me, so it's be, it depends on your mentality, right? Because my mentality is I'm never getting this money back. I don't care if it accrues interest or not. Right. Because I'm never going to call that note. <laughs> right. I mean, earmuffs everyone, but I'm never going to call that note. <laughs> right. Uh, so if, if you're the type of investor that, you know, calls notes, then you don't want saves. If you're the type of uh, investor that cares about like, you know, a few percent here because of when capital gains start getting calculated and all that kind of stuff, then you don't like saves. Uh, you know, my mentality is, you know, of course, like at the end of the day, I want more money than less. But if I'm walking away with, you know, 
10 million or nine and a half million. It's not that big a difference for me. Right. So I like it. And I think it's, it's depending on how early it is, because the earlier the investment safes are pretty common, meaning friends and family. And then as you start to expand, you kind of want to make sure that you're protecting your investment a little bit better outside of a safe. So, and because you're earlier on, it probably fits okay at that beginning. And then you decide from there what fits after. Yeah. But that also depends. It's, it's very geographic uh, to like safes are much more popular on the West coast than they are in new England. Uh, valuations are way different. Like, uh, you know, the average value, like when I look at uh, convertible notes, the average cap that I see is between three and 6 million. Uh, obviously in San Francisco, they started like eight, you know, so like, you know, it, it, 80? It, huh? 80? Yeah. Sometimes 80. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's, yeah, it's very different. So I do, I have one safe in my portfolio, which I'm neither, I'm neither kind of gung ho about nor whatever. It's not doing any worse or better than the convertible notes that are also not doing much. <laughs> nope. Fair enough. Uh, do you take board seats? Do I take uh, board seats? Yeah. So for sure. Uh, especially, so this is a smart money thing, right? Uh, I don't demand them. Uh, there's been a couple of investments that I said, look, I don't need to be on the board board, but I want to, I want, you know, part of my equity to be advisory shares. Uh, I have been on, uh, on a board or two and, uh, I find that it's helpful, but it depends on the type of company, right? Like I don't want to be on the board just to be on the board. I want to be on the board where I can bring value with my background. I love it. Yeah. All right. We're going to, we're now going to shift into the personal side of this. And right. now we're going to dive into that one or two points. And the first one we will ask is what's the one thing about you that nobody will know or two. All right. So I'll give you one that most people don't know. And, and, I, and I'm saying this and there's, there, there's a chronological reason here. So when I was little, uh, I, I was about six, five or six. Uh, I was running down the street in the park and I tripped and I fell. And I hit the chin on uh, a curb and I bit off the tip of my tongue and it was hanging by a thread. It was like, uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe the size of, uh, an, a dime, a U.S. dime. I don't know if you know what that looks like, yeah. but the size, <laughs> size of a dime. And it, it was a pretty hefty piece. Right. And so most, you know, most American parents would take you to the hospital to get stitches. Um, Fortunately or unfortunately, uh, I was with my grandmother at the time who was a World War II field surgeon. And she looked at my hanging tongue and my gushing blood from my mouth. And she basically said, no big deal. Just hold it against your teeth for a couple of days. It'll heal. And well, it did heal. I have a little bit of a scar here. Uh, I could still roll my R's like any respectable Russian. Um, but, I, <laughs> but I do have a little divot here. And and. My grandmother uh, actually passed away last week. She was a hundred, uh, but uh, I always have this little scar to remind me of her. Oh, that's awesome! Well, yeah. sorry to hear that, but she sounds like she's created some amazing memories. So it's uh, it's yeah. good. So most people don't. Yeah, that's a good one. You made me think, but that's one that most people don't know. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Yep, brilliant. Um, okay, favorite sports team. Favorite sports team. Uh, I don't have one, man. So I grew up playing individual sports. Uh, I grew up doing diving. Yeah. Uh, I was actually, here's another one that most people don't know. I was in the junior Olympics uh, for diving. And so I was never really into like big into like 
team sports. And so when I moved to America, uh, because America is way more into team sports than, than Russia is. And I remember, so I moved here in 92. And the first kind of like year we were here, I was still not really speaking English. We watched the Super Bowl. And I think it was 92, it might have been 93, but basically the Green Bay Packers were in the Super Bowl that year and the quarterback was Brett Favre. And so basically I just decided like, I like Brett Favre, I'm gonna follow him. So for, for many years, I was a Green Bay Packers fan. Then I was, you know, a Vikings fan. And then when Brett Favre uh, retired, I was like, okay, who now? And so I picked Peyton Manning. So then I was a Colts fan for a couple of years. And so I, I picked somebody I admire and then I follow that person to whatever team, uh, basically. Right now, I'm a free agent. There's not anyone that I'm following uh, because Peyton retired and I don't like his brother that much. And I definitely don't like Tom Brady. So, Well, in, the, in a quick little search, it was 93. So uh, okay. there you go. So that's awesome. Well, you still have fans, uh, sports that you're fans of. So that's good. So this yeah. gives you a little bit of... Uh, uh, a discussion point regardless. So that's cool. Yeah. I like the Olympic sports. I like gymnastics. I like, I like the kind of stuff most Americans don't like, you know, like gymnastics and uh, fencing and like all the esoteric things, diving. <laughs> yeah. well, those are good sports, man. It's individual crushing. That's good. Yeah. Um, all right. Favorite movie and what character would you play in it? I'm going to answer the first part as if there is no second part, because with the second part, it sounds silly, but my favorite movie is Commando. Okay. Uh, because it's just an incredible movie in, in all respects. But obviously, like, I can't say I'm going to be Arnold Schwarzenegger in it. <laughs> but I don't know who else. Why I not? Can. What? You could be Arnold. I guess I could be. I have carried logs, but they were much smaller. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it's, yeah. more about, it's more about the character, like... Do you represent the character represents you and how you will make it through as a commando? So if, if that's the type of character that fits your, your, you, you feel that that when you watch this, you're like, that's how I would do it. Then that's kind of the yeah. same Com Commando is basically taken, but 15, 20 years earlier where someone kidnaps his daughter, except in taken, he goes after them and kills a couple of people. And in commando, he finds an island and fights an army on the island. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I'd like to say that if somebody kidnapped my daughter, I would do that. But I don't know if I have those particular set of skills, but I, I, I do my best. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a great selection. It's good. I, I like that. I'm uh, I haven't seen commando probably since I was a kid. So I'm probably going to have to watch this. Movie watch so it's, I an incredible movie. Movie. it's an incredible movie. All right. I love it. All right. Last question. What's your superpower? My superpower. Um, the superpower I've always wanted was to fly, but I don't have that or do I, but I don't. <laughs> uh, but uh, like, uh, you know, the, the typical answer, I have been asked that question before once or twice. I think my superpower is not being disappointed with disappointments. Right. Because basically, especially as a co-founder, uh, you know, er, you pass up on a lot of things. And as an investor, you pass up on a lot of things. And if I basically, uh, if I got stuck on the things I passed up, um, I would, I would be stuck forever. 
So basically, I think my superpower is, is just being able to say, okay, like that company I passed up on just went IPO. That's a bummer. <laughs> but, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. And you can't even call it a mistake, right? Because who knows? Yeah, you can't beat yourself up on something they could have, should have, would have, right? It's one exactly. step sideways and three forward. Exactly. Well, no, no reason to go back. So that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes maybe a little hop back. It's like the, the, the cha-cha slide, you know? Yeah, exactly. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to say that Igor, this was, uh, this was awesome. A lot of fun. Uh, learned a lot. We, uh, we shared uh, a lot of good things. I think you're doing a lot of great things in the angel world and uh, keep doing that. Um, but the way we like to end our show is like, we like to give you the last word. So if there's anything that you want to share to a startup or to an entrepreneur or want to be entrepreneur or to an investor, the floor is yours. But again, thank you very much for your time today. Rockstar, you're doing awesome. I love it. And thank you for sharing with us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, listen, um, I'm going to say one thing is going to sound salesy, but it's not. I have a company called Fast CTO. Our mission is we don't profit from startups. I'm not trying to sell you anything. What we do is we help you avoid mistakes. The kind of mistakes I spent my lifetime making. <laughs> I want to help you avoid them. So come check us out. We might not be what you need, but come check us out. And if you want, you could scan this QR code and I'll take you right there. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm only going to do this because we're filming it. So it makes sense to do it. But of course it's only picking up your face right now. So I'm not sure it's going to work. I don't know. No, it didn't work because it's picking well, fast CTO.com. You could spell it. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in you. I, yes. believe in you. I believe I can do this. Well, Igor, thank you very much. Hold on two secs. We're going to pause, but thank you again for, uh, for joining us today. You've been awesome. Thank you. Okay. That was awesome. Uh, really enjoyed that conversation with Igor. He shared lots of great little tidbits. Uh, I'm going to check out the movie commando because I haven't seen that in so long. Uh, but big fan, I love what they're doing on the CTO side as a non-for-profit and just balancing everything out to help early stage companies, um, the fast CTO and just the whole overall qualifying tech and, uh, you know, just validating things as you go forward. Uh, lifestyle brands or lifestyle companies are good. You can make money. Uh, and then just the great ways that uh, he looks at and invests and how he invests. So encoding at nine and 12, fantastic. Either way, he came out with some great materials. So join us, like us, share. Thank you very much for joining us today. Have a great day.